Hi there. You're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 123. If we weren't willing to change and adapt to what our customers wanted, that we probably we wouldn't be in business. Hi, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped. And now it's time to light it up. Welcome to Gift Biz Unwrapped, your source for industry-specific insights and advice to develop and grow your business. And now, here's your host, Sue Monheit. Before we get into the show, I have a question for you. Do you know that you should be out networking, but you just can't get yourself to do it because it's scary? Are you afraid that you might walk into the room and not know anybody? Or that you're going to freeze when you get up to do that infamous elevator speech where you talk about yourself and your business. Well, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't need to be scary if you know what to do. To help you with this, I would like to offer you a coffee chat. For the price of buying me a cup of coffee, we can sit down through an online video and I'll tell you everything that I know about networking and how I have personally built two multi-six-figure businesses, primarily through networking. You'll walk away with a solid understanding about how networking can truly grow your business. And you're going to have newfound confidence because I'm going to give you 10 fill-in-the-blank templates that you can use for your introduction message. To learn more about this opportunity, just go over to bit.ly forward slash network ninja. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash network ninja. And now let's move on to the show. Hi there, it's Sue and welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Whether you own a brick and mortar shop, sell online or are just getting started, you'll discover new insight to gain traction and to grow your business. And today I have the pleasure of introducing you to Matt Holmes. Matt and his wife, Jennifer, started their retail journey about 12 years ago in downtown Holland, Michigan, with a gift and decor store called Home & Company. It took a couple years to get to that aha moment when they realized they were focused on all of the wrong things. Matt and Jennifer had just opened a second concept store called Tiptoes when the recession hit. They knew they needed to do something to adapt. Thankfully, they put in place some common sense practices Recognizing the importance of their people and trusting their customers, they not only survived the recession, but are thriving today. And I am so excited for myself to hear this whole story and Gift Biz listeners for you to hear the whole story too. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Sue. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest. I'm happy to be here and excited to share a bit about our story. Well, I've got lots of questions for you, so... (laughs) I like to start off in a little bit of a different way, and that is by having you describe yourself through a motivational candle. We're all creatives here, and it just gives us another look at what you're all about. So if you were to describe your ideal motivational candle, what color would it be, and what would be the quote on your candle? Oh, interesting. Okay, so, you know, the color I'd probably choose is yellow, and I say that because yellow to me is kind of one of those bright, warm and like cheerful colors. And it's also a bit of an attention getter. So I guess for me, wearing my marketing hat and kind of my human resources hat, I see that as a yellow candle. And in terms of like an inspirational quote, mine would be specific to what I do in terms of the retail business. And 
you know, forgive me the originator of this quote, I cannot remember or, or recall who said this, but there's a quote that stuck with me over the years of our retail journey, and that is that the customer's perception is your reality. And I think that would be the inspiration that I would put on that candle. And so many of the things that I think I'll share with you about was kind of how that realization that how the customer perceived things was actually our reality. That was part of that aha moment that you alluded to earlier. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because we all know our businesses and know our intent and know what we're trying to project. But really, that means nothing if we're not relaying it that way. It's based on what the customer sees of us. Absolutely. Really important to remember great quote for us to start off with. Let's begin at the beginning. All right. So let's take it back 12 years ago. What prompted you to start thinking about opening a shop in the first place? And I'm making the assumption that it was always retail. Yes, correct. That's a great question. And it's funny, actually, because it was about 12 years ago to the day I was recently away at market. And my wife was home and I sent her a text and I said, happy anniversary, sweetheart. And it wasn't in reference to our wedding anniversary, which was before the start of our business journey together, but it was in reference to our beginning in business. And I said, it was 12 years ago tonight that we argued about how to count the cash drawer. Shared a laugh about that. And of course, there's been many things that have come up since then that we've had to figure out how to maneuver together. But yeah, going back 12 years, we were in a position where I was in real estate and the year was about 2004, 2005 when we were making this decision to get in. And the real estate market had started to slow and it was a difficult thing for me to be involved in. And my wife was actually working as an independent merchandiser, doing visual displays for some stores in our town and had experience of growing up in a retail store herself. She has one sibling. She has a twin brother, Jeff, and the two of them growing up working in their parents' retail store always swore to one another and their parents that by no means would they ever get back or be involved in retail. And of course, that's not true for us, and nor is it for her brother, who's a retailer up in Traverse City now. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) So anyway, we had this idea that we wanted to create a store that was focused on really decorative items for the home. And we also laugh many times now about how if the store looked the way that we wanted it to look, and if we weren't willing to change and adapt to what our customers wanted, that we probably, we wouldn't be in business. So anyway, we started with Home & Company, primarily focused on decor, decorative accessories, and a little bit of gifts. And in 2005, we opened knowing that we wanted to treat people well, and that was about it, to be honest with you. What were you looking for in the first retail location? When you were out scoping out locations, what was important to you at that point? You know, it's interesting. For us, location was important. And it's a lesson having opened a couple of different retail locations that certainly when you live through, you see and realize, but it's something you can hear over and over. But location was certainly something that was important to us. We chose a spot where we started in downtown Holland, Michigan, which if you're not familiar with our wonderful community, I mean, I know you have listeners from all over the place. We have a great town and a tremendous festival and snow melt sidewalks so in the winter when it snows the snow magically disappears so there were a lot of things that led us to say wow this is a great location and a place we want to be but of course there was the trade-off of the higher rent costs and kind of that bigger risk to take on but the location was probably the number one factor as i think back is your location still there today 
Yes, we are still in the same location that we opened Home and Company in today. In that time, we did open that second business, Tiptoes, the children's business in 2008. And we opened that on what I would say was like a B location. And we did relocate that to bring it into the main street on downtown a couple years after opening. Interesting. Okay, so you had one success and one where you wanted to make a little adjustment. So if you were to give our listeners who might be thinking about a brick and mortar, the three biggest things they should be considering, if they're looking at going that route, what would you say? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, the one I just touched on location is important. And we've also, in addition to being in a downtown location, we've since opened a location that isn't in a downtown, but it's on a busy interchange, if you will, where there's heavy traffic. And so there's kind of those two thoughts. Are you in a center, like a mall, a strip center, a downtown environment where there's traffic built in? Although I say those first two, the mall and the strip center, with a little bit of caution because there's certainly a lot of questionable press and things happening with some of the anchor tenants on those on the large mall locations. But anyway, location is an important consideration. And then looking at the lease structure and thinking about what type of commitment you're willing to get into because there's obviously trade-offs on both sides. The longer commitment you sign up front, the more liable you are for something if your business model does not work out in that location. But of course, if it turns out to be a good location, that can also set you up to be in a good position. So location, lease, and gosh, a third thing, I guess, would just be how willing the landlord, if you're not in a position to purchase the property, how willing the landlord is to work with you and to help you out. And so I think those three things are pretty critical to navigate and think through as you're considering a brick and mortar location. Okay. When you say work with you, do you mean like if you needed to separate yourself from a lease or build out situations? or Yeah, both being really critical because just like in anything, there's different ownership groups and different opportunities to lease from a variety of people. I think you can get a sense when you're working with someone, but it's always good to have things in writing too. So if there's some clauses that you can put, in fact, one of the initial leases that we did for a business we opened was that we made it contingent on sales. So the landlord wanted to fill the space and they were willing to work with us. And in doing so, we put together a lease agreement, which paid them on a percentage of sales. And so in theory, when we had a good month, their rent was higher. And when we had a poor month of sales, we paid less in rent. And so that was a peace of mind for us, kind of a nice security to know that if we struggled, then we were going to pay less. However, over time, I went back and renegotiated that lease once we had figured out that the concept we had was working because then it started to favor the landlord. And I wanted to, of course, renegotiate that. Right. And it's in the property owner's best interest also to do something creative like this, because once you get a tenant in, you want to keep them for as long as you can if you're looking from the property owner's eyes. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, they want the same thing. You know, both parties, if they truly want the same thing, you can put together a good agreement because, yeah, it's absolutely way more costly for the owner to go out and find a new tenant or to do another build out for someone or market the property. So, yes, absolutely. So the three things to look at or first three things, I guess we should say. Matt's talking about location, your lease structure, what you are committing to, also what's part of that lease in terms of the services that they include versus what you might have to do, such as snow removal, electricity, Wi-Fi, all of that type of thing. And then how willing they are to work with you, which you know, one way to get under that too, I think, is to talk to other people who are leasing space from that same person. 
Yeah, great point, Sue. Yeah. All right. So you got into your first shop and you were talking already a little bit about how you wanted to set it up one way and you saw your customers needed it set up a different way. Can you give us a little more information on that? Yeah, well, really what it came down to was kind of like the policies and the way we conducted ourselves and the way that we thought about our business. I think in terms of what your product mix is, whatever category you're in, whether it's retail or a home-based business or anything, you always need to be open to adapt. And so like our product mix, we could follow kind of the customer's progression. And part of that was just analyzing what's selling and what's not. But when we really, I think, kind of had that aha moment was at about the same time that we opened our second concept store, Tiptoes, which is a children's store in Holland, Michigan. And if I had had a magic crystal ball or could see into the future, I don't know that that business would exist today because we actually signed, speaking of lease agreement, signed the lease for that location in December of 2007. So we were coming off what felt like a pretty good holiday season for us at Home and Company a couple years into the business. And we thought we were ready to expand and try another concept. And so we signed that lease agreement in December of 2007 and opened in April of 2008. And as you know about that time, I'm sure many of the listeners can understand as well, that had a dramatic impact. The 2008 economic downturn did on not just our home and company business, which was two years old, but also on this new business that we opened. And so, frankly, we went into 2009, finishing the 2008 holiday season, you know, really up to our eyes in debt and owing vendors lots of money, having less than anticipated sales and really not having any plans in place for how to deal with those types of things. So it was a very challenging time for us. And the beginning of that aha that we're describing and realizing that what we were doing was broken. And if we wanted to stay in business, that we needed to make some serious adjustments. And that was kind of the beginning of many things to come. I think that was really a smart thought process for you guys, because what you could have said is, oh, it's the economy. This is just what's happening. Oh, poor us. Right. But you didn't. You took control of it and said, all right, yes, this is happening, but this is just one challenge among you know, lots of them that we'll have as business owners. And you looked inside of what could you do? What could you as the business be responsible for fixing so that, you know, you weren't going to shudder? That couldn't be more accurate. And I think that that's one of the most important things. I spoke with a group of some retail peers recently, and we were talking about this. And I think that probably the number one attribute, at least from my perspective, the number one thing that a successful entrepreneur, business person has to have is that ability to first look in the mirror and to accept responsibility for everything else that's happening in their business and around them. And when we're willing to first address our own faults, rather than, like you said, point blame at different things that happen, that's the first step in seeing yourself through any challenge, in my opinion. So what did you do? You talk about the fact that you, common sense practices is what you're talking about, but then really turning your eye to your people, which I think you're talking about as your employees, and then also the customers. So give us a little more detail of what you were able to do to survive during that time. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the biggest part of that aha moment was realizing that we had an impact on the customer's experience in our store. 
And I think up until that point, we knew that we wanted to treat people well, that we wanted to be nice to our customers. And we didn't really expand on that with our staff. We didn't really talk about what that meant. We didn't really put it into terms they could understand. And I don't think we had an unpleasant environment, but we didn't have a sales-focused, customer service-focused environment. And so the first thing that we did is we kind of made a drastic shift. And in this, it was a disruption in our norm. And so we did, through the process, lose a couple of people. And we didn't position it in a way that it was anything reflective on them. It was just that we were going to be making some changes in our business. And if it didn't fit with who they were, then they were okay to go. And I think some of that can be healthy because anytime you need to make a change, some people are able to take change and embrace it. Other people, it's just really against their nature and are adverse to change and struggle with it. So the biggest thing that we did was we basically looked at selling as a skill and realized that if we're going to improve our skills, we need to practice our skills. And that was the number one thing that we began to actually train, coach, and focus time and energy and effort and dollars into develop our service staff. And that was the biggest step forward in the right direction for us. I think that's an interesting mentality to have in terms of you're just not hiring people to put in hours, work the floor, straighten stock, check customers out. Making an investment in your staff number one, makes them feel more valued and is also obviously doing good things for your business in terms of customer interaction, all of that. Plus, it's really nice because it's giving those associates added skills that they're going to either use while they're with you or as they move forward. Yeah, absolutely. We know for some of our people, we're a landing point that some people will come to us and we've been super blessed and fortunate to have people that have been in our employee for eight or 10 or 11 years out of the 12 that we've been around. But we also have a variety of young people and people that are kind of using this as a stepping point to the next spot in their career, as much as I would like to think that every person I interview's dream job is to come and work for us. You know, I know that people have aspirations that probably go beyond retail a lot of times. And so, yeah, that's exactly right. We love to be able to develop those skills and say to that person in the interview process and through their training that if you invest yourself into what we're trying to do with you and help you, you're going to take these skills and be able to apply them in all sorts of ways in your life ahead. If we learn how to sell and interact with people and ask good questions and be attentive in that process, those are skills that you can use in job interviews and team meetings with your family and your kids and all throughout life. Absolutely. And you've just defined then what the training looked like in terms of communication and interacting and all of that. And Matt, you and I have chatted a little bit when you were in your summit about how, you know, brick and mortar is different than it was even 12 years ago, really, you know, as the internet and online and everything has just exploded, certainly way different than 20 years ago. Having brick and mortar, one of the biggest things that stand out versus people going and buying any type of product online is the experience that you get in the store. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about the skills that that training did in terms of the communicating, listening to a customer, how did that relate? Like, how did the associates change their behaviors when they're talking to a customer? 
Great question. So I think it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to do this training and you can get a variety of people into a room and you can go through an hour training and everybody can get incredibly excited, you know, about it. And you can have these short little interactions, but without the follow through and without the accountability piece, things go from real order or really good to slipping. And so over time, we know that if we don't focus on those things and that's not part of our regular dialogue and we're not doing anything to keep people accountable, that those things will slip back. And so for us, every day, each person on our staff is required to basically complete a short assignment. So to give you an example of what it looks like in our store, we have rotating daily focuses, we call them. And a daily focus might remain the same for about a week or a shorter period of time, but for a couple of days, because not every person works every day. It's okay to be focused on the same thing for a couple of days in a row, I believe, too. And so the daily focus might be that after you've helped a customer find something, that they're on their way up to the counter at some point in the process, that you recommend show or tell the customer about some other product in the store. And so that would be an example of how we're trying to add on. And we look for value added add-ons so that if for say the customer is purchasing a gift that we are sure to tell them that we have gift cards and that we have something else that may complement it. And that would be an example of one daily focus. And so our staff person, when they start their shift, is required to do a role play. That's the first part of it. And the role play is a two or three minute piece where they get together with another manager or another peer and they go through a scenario. And it can be the daily focus or it might be a new product that came in or it could be anything. Ideally, we want them to focus on the things that they believe they need practice in. And so this would be kind of like the practice part. And when I'm talking to staff and we're setting this up and we're reinforcing it, I'm always trying to relate it back to something that makes sense to the staff person I'm talking to. So if I know the person is a musician, for example, and that they play an instrument like the clarinet, I might say to that person, when you're preparing for an event or an orchestra or a performance, what do you do? How much time do you spend practicing your instrument? How often do you do it? Why do you do that? And what I'm trying to do is build the bridge and help them connect the fact that when they practice their instrument, they became more confident in their performance, enhanced their skills, and were hopefully at the pinnacle of their playing time. Perfect. And it's also more natural. If they've tried it a couple of times, it's more likely that they're going to be more natural in front of a customer. Oh, absolutely. And we're very frank about that, too. It's like, look, and when we hire new people, I tell them, it's like, this might be unnatural or feel kind of uncomfortable for you, but I'd much rather have you go through those steps with one of us than with the customer. And so you're 100% right on there. And so anyway, they do the role play. They fill out just a quick bit of information about the role play. And then throughout the course of the day, they're accountable for writing three instances in which they did the daily focus and then what the customer's reaction was. Interesting. Then what do you do with that? So then when they're done with their daily focus slip, we have a spot where those go and myself or our sales trainer will pull the slips out and we'll read through them and we'll just jot back a short note or two to the staff person. And so basically what we want to do is show the person on that we're asking to complete this daily focus sheet that we're looking at it and to give them the feedback or encouragement based off of what they've written. This is such a unique approach. I've never heard of this before, nor, Matt, have I heard of a retail shop having a sales trainer. Hey, well, you know, it's interesting. It's certainly an investment to get to that point, to make that leap. But the payback is huge, not just in customer retention and 
increase sales. But what you alluded to earlier too is what we have found is when the staff feels competent and feels equipped and feels successful, that they frankly enjoy what they're doing more. And it helps us retain our customer service people as well. Totally agree. That is so interesting. One question comes to mind. I'm wondering how you handle this. Everyone's a little bit different. Some people will feel very comfortable approaching and doing the add-on type thing, you know, identifying another product, just like you were saying in your example. Some people are less comfortable with that. Some people have other types of skills. Do you try to mold things to each employee or do you want them to work the system based on whatever that task, the action is for the day, the daily focus? Yeah, great question. I think I'll kind of answer that in two ways. So we're always aware or we're always attempting to be aware and to communicate with our staff about where in the store they feel most comfortable and what product they feel most comfortable selling so that we have a realization of that. And when it's busy, we try to station or position those people into the spots that make the most sense for them based on that. But in terms of like the daily focus, you know, and the attempts to add on, we would rather try to do than give the person a pass on that is reemphasize why it's important. And it was actually someone else in the retail world, a fellow by the name of Bob Nagan with the Whizbang training. And I sat in a conference and you just take little snippets from different people that you hear. And he had shared this story and it always stuck with me going back probably like 10 years ago now about a visit to a his eyeglass doctor and the poor experience he ended up having because the eyeglass doctor didn't tell him about all the things that he might potentially need for his bifocals and it ended up resulting in more trips. And so what we try to help that salesperson understand is that attempting to add on, if we look at it in terms of just attempting to sell the customer something because we want to add on to our sales, that's not the goal. What we're trying to do is sell the customer something that they may not otherwise have seen or may not have otherwise realized could enhance their purchase. And so we'll try to work through some kind of real world in-store examples of what that can look like to help that person rather than just give them a pass on it altogether. I really appreciate that explanation because I've been in situations where I'll walk into a store and I'll have something and you know I was fully intending on whatever I've found now I'm going to purchase and someone will come up to me and show me something and clearly they've had some add-on training or you know they've been told to bump their sales or something and they are showing me something that we never talked about doesn't relate to the product that I have like it's a total disconnect. Yes. And it's clear that it's for the store's financial gain not my gain as a customer. <laughs> yeah there's a distinction between the two absolutely. Completely. So we've talked about the fact that the experience is everything and that totally, you know, in terms of interacting with your employees and then also with the customer in mind, which goes back to your candle quote, all of that in-store experience is so, so, so important to brick and mortar right now. What else are you seeing is helping bring people in the door? You know, I really think that We've got to do, as brick-and-mortar retail, we have to differentiate ourselves from not just the big box stores, but the other experiences that customers are choosing between when they choose to come to us. And so, you know, obviously having a dynamic product mix and having product that the customer wants is important, product price, all those different things. 
so having product and then I think doing things that wow the customer. And one of my big focuses in terms of marketing and keeping our business in the top of customers' minds has been this philosophy of the giver's get. And so doing promotions and things that stand out from what everybody else is doing and being willing to kind of take some risks and think outside of the box. Can you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. I work with a group of retailers that we have stores spread all over the country. We're part of this independent buying group called the Southwest Buying Group. And among member stores, there's, gosh, maybe like 500 rooftop locations. So it's quite a large network of people sharing and such. And again, kind of as a side note, if you're listening out there and you're not connected with other people that are doing similar things to what you're trying to do in your industry, whatever you are, a crafter, a retail store owner, baker, or whatever, do what you can to reach out and make some connections with other people that are in your profession and outside of your trade area. So as a side note, sorry to jump away from the question, Sue, but that just kind of popped into my mind. That's been one of the probably most dynamic things that's impacted our business. So reach out and connect. But where I'm going with this is to a promotion that we did successfully now for a couple of years running. One of like kind of the staple items in our area where it gets cool in the winter, well, frankly, cold in the winter, and <laughs> is the fleece line leggings. And so, you know, the leggings are very popular now. It's kind of the base to many different tops that ladies are using to wear. And, and at our store home and company, we have a small fashion area. And so we have been able to negotiate some great pricing the last few years on these fleece line leggings. And everybody else, bar none, in our entire group is going out at a price, I believe, of like $9.99 on these leggings or $7.99 perhaps. We've run specials in the holiday season with these leggings, not much above our cost at $3.99. And the quality of the legging is phenomenal. People literally can't believe it when they try it on. And many, many times throughout the season, we have people that aren't even customers coming into our store because so-and-so told them about this unbelievable knock-your-socks-off offer. And everybody in the group thought I was a little bit crazy for this, but we sold, I don't know, eight or 9,000 pair of fleece line leggings and created an incredible buzz, which brought all of these people in multiple times in the last six weeks leading up to Christmas when, guess what? They had to buy Christmas gifts. And so that was one example of how we were willing to like step away and outside of the box because what we weren't so caught up on was protecting the margin and the leggings, but we were using that instead as a tool to drive more visits to our store. Got it. You weren't losing money on the deal. Correct. You know, but you had it super low priced and only available in the store, not online, Matt? Correct. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, we may even have an incredible stock, Sue, but I may put a sign limit X number per customer to encourage, again, repeat visits and also create kind of that sense of urgency. Ah, you little sneak. There's this book I read that said, you know, all marketers are liars, and then it had it crossed out and said storytellers. And I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go with that. (laughs) I think that would be Seth Godin. Is that right? (laughs) That sounds right. (laughs) I love that. All right, so that is an excellent, excellent idea for lots of us. 
super because you get them in the store and maybe they've known of the business before they've driven by because you already are in good locations but nothing has really gotten people to enter through that front door before absolutely and another part of that that's pretty critical sue that i believe is that once the customer is in the store and they make that decision that they're going to purchase so that customer has come in maybe it was the fleece line leggings that got them in or maybe it's some wow deal on something else or whatever it is when the customer makes that decision that they're going to purchase, they're going to take out their wallet or their purse, and they're going to move to the counter, I believe that the customer is at that point much more susceptible to finding other things to fall in love with in our stores as well. I would agree. They're already going to be opening their wallet, so what else is there that they need? You got it. So we're get them in that thought process, and then, hey, then we'll take over and do our job to show them a bunch of fun stuff and make it happen. Got it. couple of questions for you. Are you able to retain some type of connection with that customer once they've purchased for the first time, email, or somehow be able to communicate with them later? Yeah, great point. So we have a few standards in our business that no matter what, everybody must do. And you know, you asked earlier about kind of like the training and how we train. We don't want people to speak in a robotic way, to repeat a script, like the 10-year-old that's trying to sell me cookies and is just reading off their paper. We want emotion to come through in the person. But one of our non-negotiable things that every person must do is at the point of checkout, we ask every customer whether or not they're part of our preferred customer club. And so, yes, we do make an attempt and we don't take the first objection. We train how to overcome objections and what some of those common objections are. And so I'm proud to say that that was one of the things also that we implemented in early 2008. And at Home and Company today, we have over 20,000 preferred customer club members. Wow. Yeah, and have some 4,000 email opens on each email blast that we do. So very, very valuable part of our business. Oh my gosh, yes. So successful with that for sure. Especially the opens. That tells me that you're putting some good information in those emails. Yeah, trying to. (laughs) What do they look like? Well, you know, pretty consistent. And so one of the things that we want to try and do is keep them pretty short. And typically we want to tell something that's happening in our community. And so we never want to be solely focused on just promotion. So we want to have a little bit of a voice. So we'll share like a calendar of events and call attention to something that's going on, whether it's a free concert series or a festival of some sort or whatever. And then we'll highlight something that's not a sale item, but that's typically a new product or great for the season. And then we'll also highlight some type of offer or call to action. So everyone knows that when an email comes from you, it's not going to be so salesy. They're going to see some opportunity there, but there'll also be some good information. Yes. For leisure time or you know whatever it might be. Yeah. Quick question before we kind of close this part up. We've talked a lot about product mix because when someone comes in, you want to make sure that they're seeing something that they want to purchase. In the beginning, of course, you're just guessing. You know, you're going to buy whatever you think your customer is going to want. Clearly, you can track what's working through sales. Is there any other way that you're gauging what types of products when you go to market and are starting to replenish inventory and spice things up and get new things? How do you know what to narrow in on? Yeah, if I only had a great answer for that question, you know, I that's part of the challenge and part of what we enjoy. And of course, what you said, watching your sales and your analytics is an important part to that. We read different trade magazines and of course are, you know, always have an eye on social media and different things because oftentimes things can pop up out of there. 
but I really go back probably to that networking piece. So when I go to market, I spend about as much time networking with other retailers as I do working the sales floor or working the show floor, I should say. And so just as I'll share information with them, they will with me. And I've always felt like if I know that something is working in a couple of different areas or I hear it from a few different retailers, I'll approach that line or that concept with a little more confidence than I would just discovering it on my own. Very interesting. All right, the final question here. I think it's so funny that your wife and her twin brother said they would never go into retail and here they are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Your in-laws can probably do some of those, I told you so. (laughs) But she is doing merchandising, right? Yes. So any tips for our listeners on displays? Yeah. So in addition to her doing merchandising, we actually employ two people that do merchandising for us at our various stores. And that's their only job. So they come in and they're dedicated solely to that. And I think if you have a brick and mortar store, you've probably experienced this before when you get in something and you're super excited about it and you get it out on the floor. And for whatever reason, sales aren't what you anticipated. Sometimes it simply takes a move or a fresh look to bring that into the customer's view better or to give it a better shot. And so we believe that with merchandising, that the most important part of that is keeping the store looking and feeling fresh. And so, again, it's one of those things that we want to do to encourage the customer to come back as often as possible. And so if someone was in our store four weeks ago and they came back in today, the store would have not a completely different look and feel because our staple products are going to maintain their space, but to be neat and orderly in their presentation. But our impact displays, our front displays, the first things the customer sees that are more seasonal or geared towards what's going on, there's where we want to see the change in the movement. And the same is true for our windows. And I think that when you make that investment, it tells the customer something maybe subconsciously or subtly that there's things happening at this business. This is an interesting place to be and kind of creates that sense of discovery, if you will. So how often do you change the windows? The windows are changed probably, it depends again on the focus. So they were changed for Father's Day and now they're 4th of July themed. And so after the 4th of July, we'll transition into general summer. So weeks they'll transition into fall. And so they'll probably have two change outs in the fall and then transition into Christmas. So every Mm -hmm. three to four or so weeks, but we don't like it to get much longer than four weeks. That's for sure. That's perfect information. And so important because you're right. I mean, freshening it up does say, just like you're talking about, that there's something going on that you're really attentive to the business. Have you ever gone by shops and you're seeing the same thing in the windows that was there even three months ago? Or heaven forbid you see some tinsel from Christmas now. You know, there's this store downtown that they've been in business for like 115 years now. I won't say the name, but they have in their windows celebrating 100 years. And it's like through 2004. And it's like the same sticker has been there now for 13 years. It's like update your sticker. Yeah. You know, the simple things. (laughs) Well, you know, it's those subtle things that you maybe as a customer, you don't even really recognize it. But there's something about the store that just isn't as exciting. Yeah. You know, you can't even necessarily put your finger on it, but it's those little subtle things for sure. All right, Matt, let's switch this up a little bit and talk about you and Jennifer in terms of how you've been able to carry on and be successful. Brick and mortars, we have seen, you know, best intentions for all the things you've talked about have kept you going. 
But what is it about you two, maybe yourself or maybe Jennifer or Trait, that has helped you guys either stay in business or be able to stay in business together? Because that's also a challenge. Yeah, definitely. We laugh about that a lot. And of course, in business, you have different opinions. And then being a husband and wife and navigating those opinions and being respectful to one another. So anyway, we've certainly navigated through a lot of things. To put a word with it or an attribute, I think that just maintaining the focus on continuous improvement and having like that determination that never really satisfied. And so I think that it's maybe a blessing and a curse to say I never feel satisfied. That's not necessarily true either because I'm very satisfied in what we do. I love the work that we do. I love going to work every day. But in terms of being satisfied with the sales or with where we're at in our business, I think that just and kind of going back to what I said with the candle thing, when we want to complain about something, being accepting and open to looking at how you're impacting that result. So if I'm upset about the way someone treated someone that I saw at the counter, to not be upset first with that person, the salesperson, but to first look and say, when is the last time I've had a touch point or a on the floor coaching interaction with that salesperson and maybe it's been three or four weeks or maybe it's been longer or maybe it was just the other day i don't know what the answer is it depends on the situation but first looking i guess at oneself and realizing there are things that i can do and that i'm responsible for and i'm not going to settle or point blame I probably gave way more than one attribute or something. But anyway, I hope that makes sense to you. No, I think it's a really, really important statement because as a business owner, you could blame as much as you want or to your point, you know, well, what is it that I could be doing better to affect the situation so it doesn't happen again is the way you're going to be able to lead to success. Because if you're always blaming, yeah, that's great. You may take the responsibility off of you, but sales aren't going to go up. Employees aren't going to feel satisfied. And what could potentially happen to the business? The other thing I like that you're talking about with continuous improvement is also if you keep changing, you stay relevant. If you watch what's going on in the environment, you make adjustments so that you stay important to your customers, bringing in the right product. I mean, it, it goes through every aspect of the company, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that continuous improvement is a fabulous answer. I appreciate you're talking about it in that manner. Is there any tool that you're using? You have for sure two stores. Did I kind of hear there's a third store in there somewhere? Yeah, we have two ladies fashion boutiques, Jean Marie's as well. Ah, holding out on us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to get too like complicated with the story. Those came along a little later, but yes, we do. Okay, so now not only multiple locations, but multiple focuses and different brand names. So there's a lot for you to manage here. What type of tools or what do you use to kind of keep everything under control? Yeah, great question. Honestly, it's maybe not so much a tool as it's just something you have to develop, I believe, in yourself, and it's trust. And to have people that you can trust to take over the things that you don't need to be directly in control of. And that was probably one of our biggest challenges in the first few years of growing our business. And to some degree, probably a good thing, because as you develop your business and you're developing what your brand is and who your identity is, there are certainly things that you want and need to control. 
But what I'm talking about are the day-to-day things that we sometimes feel like we need to do, you know? And I mean, just the other day, I'm sitting, my office is in the basement of one of our stores. And so on my long days, sometimes I don't get upstairs and see the sunlight for several hours. And the other day, I'm sitting down there and I'm plugging away and I spent a couple of hours and what was I doing? I was making labels or I was doing some small task that I felt like at that moment needed to be done and I needed to be the one in control of it. But I think that in order for us to grow, we need to realize that we have people who are talented around us. Their ideas may not always be the same as ours, and that's good too. We have a great manager for our Jean Marie's, our ladies clothing business. She's very young and she has a lot of great ideas and she'll bring to me an idea about this thing she wants to try for a marketing event or something. And she'll explain it to me and she'll say, what do you think? And I'll say, what do you think? And she'll tell me why she thinks it's a good idea. And I'll say, that's wonderful, Marcy. Give it a shot. If it doesn't work, let's not repeat it. If it does, let's tweak it and improve it and keep doing it. And I think giving your people some power and some authority to make decisions and to resolve some matters that don't tie you up in making those kind of mundane decisions and bogging you down so that you have time to focus on the most important points to grow your business. Absolutely. I can hear just by that story, I understand why people stay with you as long as they do, because you give them ownership in the success of their locations too. And let them do their creative ideas in terms of business building without having to make the financial investment of a business of their own. It's kind of like they still do have the business of their own because it's their idea. Yeah, absolutely. So where else, you're talking about how you're networking and you're part of the buying groups and all of that. Where else or what other things do you tap into so that you make sure you stay relevant in the business, whether it's, you know, books or conferences or masterminds, whatever? Yeah, the mastermind thing is huge. We have a network of out of that larger group of retailers where we share consistently. We have a smaller group of about 14 or so of us that share on deeper levels and have intentionally scheduled phone conferences and callings with one another. So that's a huge part of it. But I also believe if anybody recommends a great book, I love picking it up. It's the one thing I wish I had more time to read. But in the last year, I've also really fallen in love with and discovered exactly what you're doing in terms of the podcast. And I think the podcast, the amount of information that you can get that's out there and just readily available to us and at our fingertips is tremendous. And so just trying to be a lifelong learner and soak up anything, taking every little bit I can. And that's one of the things that I think is awesome about being an entrepreneur and being in business is that it's kind of like this giant social experiment. And if we make enough little tweaks, the end result can be very beneficial. Totally agree with you. And Gift Biz listeners, I know you like audio since you're listening to the podcasts. And as Matt is saying, same thing for him. He's gathering a lot of information and there's so much available for free. Also, books are available on audio. I've teamed up with Audible, which is one of the places where you can go and get audiobooks. And I would like to offer, if you haven't done so already, a free Audible book on me. All you need to do is go to giftbizbook.com and make a selection there. That's giftbizbook.com. Okay, Matt, I would like you now to dare to dream. I'd like to present you with a virtual gift. It's a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for your future. So this is your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you would wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it in our presence. 
what is inside your box? <laughs> All right. Wow. That's kind of the sky's the limit here. It is. It's that law of attraction type thing. Yes. I <laughs> guess for me, it's probably the most common term that I hear used in our industry a lot is in it. What I would open in your presence would be this crystal ball. And it would be a crystal ball that I could look into and ask questions about what's going to sell? What should I buy? Where should I be? What should we be doing? <laughs> because I think that most things in our store environment, of course, we have control over. And the one thing that we don't necessarily always have control over is what new products coming and where we should be investing our dollars. And so I guess for me, it would just be that magic crystal ball and it would solve all of my problems. There you go. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to see more of what Home & Company is all about, where would be a good single place for them to go? Yeah, you know, as good of a job as we do in the brick and mortar aspect of it, our online sales are very much lagging. So if you go and you search our direct sales websites, you'll probably be somewhat disappointed. But my outlook on that has been, I can either be a small fish in an extremely vast ocean or I can be a big fish in a small pond and really focus on what we do well. So I think online, the more accurate representation of really who we are is probably on our social media, on our Facebook pages. And you could find us by searching facebook.com forward slash home and company or forward slash Jean Marie's store. And you could check out a little bit about what we do. One thing that your listeners, some of them might enjoy is in our Jean Marie's store on Facebook, we do a lot of live Facebook fashion shows. And so one of the ways that we reach our customers is through the live Facebook fashion show, which if you happen to take a look at, you'll see what I mean. Oh my gosh. I know we'll have listeners going over to that for sure. <laughs> I am. I know I am. Wonderful. And Gifters listeners, you also know that there's a show notes page that will be connected with this episode. So I'll have all the links there of websites and the Facebook pages for sure. And I'll even put fashion show live or something there so that you'll know exactly which one that is. So you'll have it all set for you. So, okay, Matt, thank you so much. I really appreciate all of the information that you've given. While we were talking, I'm kind of thinking like I might want to move there and work for you because I really like the passion that you have for the personal aspect of it. You know, interaction with the employees, interaction with the customers, but not placing the blame game, but turning the mirror on yourself is your saying. And I think all of those are such good skills. It's no surprise to me how successful you are. And may your candle always, always burn bright. Thank you so much, Julie. Where are you in your business building journey? Whether you're just starting out or already running a business and you want to know you're set up for success, find out by taking the Gift Biz Quiz. Access the quiz from your computer at bit.ly slash giftbizquiz or from your phone by texting giftbizquiz to 44222. Thanks for listening and be sure to join us for the next episode. Today's show is sponsored by The Ribbon Print Company. Looking for a new income source for your gift business? Customization is more popular now than ever. Brand your products with your logo or print a happy birthday Jessica ribbon to add to a gift right at checkout. It's all done right in your shop or craft studio in seconds. Check out theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. After you listen to the show, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to jump over and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That way you'll automatically get the newest episodes when they go live. And thank you to those who have already left a rating and review. 
By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you help to increase the visibility of Gift Biz Unwrapped. It's a great way to pay it forward to help others with their entrepreneurial journey as well.